Hi, this is the podcast Queer Margins, Series 1, Old Queens, and I'm Rhys T. Matthews. Queer Margins aims to talk to those in the LGBTQ plus community who are already heard from. And this series, I'm talking to older queer people about their experiences. And this is episode 12, Ruth. My wife was looking for something and looked at the boot of my car and found a Polaroid picture of this woman and came tearing into the hospital and saying, who's this? You know, because it was all neatly in some sort of hidden uh, envelope or something like that. And I had to either admit to having a girlfriend or having that. (laughs) I met Ruth through Gabby and Liz from episode nine. Liz put me in touch with Ruth and I'm really glad she did. We arranged to meet during a trip Ruth was making to London for work. So I went to her hotel for our conversation. We met in the lobby and chatted for a bit before heading up to her room for the interview. At 81, Ruth was the oldest person to go through gender reassignment surgery in Britain and possibly the world. She's 85 now and has been living fully as a woman since her 70s. Her positivity is contagious and she's often got a funny twist to what is otherwise a sad story. So, here's Ruth. Well, at that time, there was no name for it and there was no concept of it amongst ordinary people because it wasn't spoken about. Obviously, that sort of thing has gone on in history, we now know. But I was about nine years old when I realised that there was this thing drawing at me and uh, making me feel strangely uncomfortable about things. And it was considered so automatically, I got the idea that it would be something that was wrong, that I shouldn't mention to people, and it was sort of dirty. So it was bottled up very much, but I had this desire to sort of go into the household rag bag and pick out little bits of female clothing and wear them. And when was that have been? So that would have been like 19, the mid-1940s, or early 1940s, is that right? When were you born? Oh, nine, uh, 1933. So this would have been in like the mid, early to mid-40s? Yeah, yes, yes, okay. yes. Uh, and I was an evacuee during the war, which, okay. uh, but I did get home sometimes. And after the doodle bugs, mm-hmm. I got home. Uh, when the blitz was over, I went home for a little bit and lived at school. I went to a, a boarding school near home, right. and then that got uh, damaged, not really hit, but yeah. damaged by a doodle bug that landed right beside it. So then when did you become aware that it wasn't just you that felt that way? Now, that was much later, because quite honestly... Um, I thought this was a sort of personal aberration that was some sort of sexual aberration, if you like, the sort of bad feelings of sexual feelings. And uh, that, probably until I was about 16 or something like that, I didn't realise that other people had similar feelings. And it was probably in my, yes, in my early 20s, before I realised that there was... Uh, even some sort of connection between these people, um, which was the Beaumont Society mm-hmm. in those days. And uh, after a while, I was able to take their magazine through a sort of post-restaurant address and all that sort of thing. You know, it was really difficult. So how did you become aware then when you were 16 that other trans people existed? Well, reading and the fact okay. that his, in history there are cases I, I was well read at school yeah. and uh, so you got the feeling that there was something in some people that was like this. Mm-hmm. And how did that make you feel then? Well you, I felt that it was 
there was such a taboo on things like that. Uh, you have to remember that until after the war, a shop would sh- screen off the area that sold ladies' underwear, uh, you know, a sort of department store, and not, no shop would ever put it in the window. There was so much considered taboo that you realised that, that, you know, this was something that you shouldn't be knowing about, something you shouldn't be interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was taboo to the male population. So did you tell anybody in between you being 16 and you becoming aware of the Beaumont Society then? No, no. Just kept it to yourself? It was only once I got to the Beaumont Society that I began to realise that there were contacts and things like that. And uh, after some while, I started... I mean, I was probably my... I I can't remember, actually. My mid-twenties, I think, when... I used to go to a dinner that they arranged once once a month at a small restaurant in Fulham, uh, and uh, uh, it was it was very sneaky. Uh, How? What do you mean? Well, we would drive our cars up as close as we could. You've got to remember that the streets had two policemen had policemen all over the place, not two, one was they were just walking streets all night. You know, it was quite common to walk along even a sort of quiet quietish street. Uh, like Fulham Road, you know, uh, and be, you'd be surprised if you didn't see a policeman. And uh, the police, uh, the police had this attitude: you do anything like that, you're slapped into a cell mm-hmm. and brought for magistrates in the morning for uh, outraging public decency. That I knew because of the Beaumont Society magazine, things like that, and that what we more read about it. And they had this thing called aversion therapy, which. I don't know if you know what that is. I do, but could you, yeah, could you explain it a little bit then? Oh, well, it was, uh, they would make you eat horrible things, they would make horrible noises, they'd make you very uncomfortable um, while you were wearing things, and they would abuse you, shout obscenities at you, and make you feel ashamed of yourself. Um, in the hope that you would feel associated with nasty things, mm-hmm. uh, even to the extent that they would uh, not injure you, but hurt you right. physically. Electric shock treatment, for instance, was oh. one of them. Give you electric shocks while you were dressed up, so you got a burst to whole thing. But we were very careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh my God, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I struggled through, you know, and the little crew that used to, about eight or nine of us used to come and have a dinner, oh. and... Uh, it was very amusing because there were three of them who were really three little old ladies with their knitting. And, oh my gosh! You know, sitting there plump with their glasses, and they would they would be up to all sorts of tricks. They used to come and entertain us with what they'd been doing during the month. You know, what <laughs> what sort of thing? They would sort of uh, they were very convincing, and they would sit on a park bench and natter away and. And they actually went on a boating holiday on, on the canals. Uh, so they went to one of these canal boat places, you know, hire a boat. And the chap says, no, 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 you've got to have a man with you. I must have a man on, you know, in charge of this boat. And so they were sent away. But, of course, a fortnight later they came back and said, well, two of us are going. We found a man. <laughs> and that was all right. So off they went round the corner. Of course, it was still three. Back to three little old ladies. And 
I mean, they were all 60-ish or something like that, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, they went up, and it was near Banbury somewhere, I think, on the canal. Uh, they were going through a lock and waiting, a nice sunny day, out on deck. And, of course, in those days, uh, photography uh, was always processed through boots or wherever it was, you know. Yeah. And boots censored everything. You couldn't, oh, okay. put, you couldn't put something through boots that looked slightest bit doubtful, you know. So Polaroid cameras had come in. <laughs> that was considered the thing for us, you know. We, the way to get around the yeah, sense. Yeah. Way to get around that. So there there they were sitting on deck, sunning themselves, with the Polaroid camera of course beside them. And out of the bushes comes this fella and goes, Wee <laughs> oh. <laughs> <It's> coating <laughs> flashing. And of course this caused them to collapse in laughter. They were absolutely really entertained. <laughs> they were they couldn't hold themselves in laughing. So one of them grabbed the camera and took a photograph, of course. And this very discur- di- disconcerted flasher disappeared into the bushes and went. And they thought, well, this is dangerous. You know, we mustn't have a guy like this around. We've got to tell the police. So when they got to Banbury or somewhere nearby, anyway, they, they went to the police station and they said, look, look, you know, we, we, we had this guy. Look, we took a photo of him uh, flashing us. <laughs> and the police took it very seriously and said, oh, yes, you know, if we see his face and all that, we might be able to find him or us. And so they took down all the details. And, of course, at the end of it, they said, well, now we need your names and addresses. (laughs) And they had to explain that they were. (laughs) And uh, the police said, sorry, there's no offence occurred. A man can flash at a man. (laughs) What? Yeah. And they had the whole thing was dropped. And one of them had a boat somewhere down on the south coast, and they would go out sailing in it and... You know, they come into the pub and sit there, yatta yatta. They were absolutely full of it. What a life! That's amazing. What a life they yeah. had. They had a wonderful time. <laughs> uh, and I must say that it's it made me realise that what was nagging away at me every day of my life was something not so much to be ashamed of. It was something that had a fun side to it, it had a, a life to it, and not just something that you just had to bear. Uh, that, that. And it wasn't long before I told my friends in London, uh, I, I, I worked up in the north for a while, and they came back down to London. And uh, I told my friends in London uh, about myself and showed them photos, and they said, oh, this is wonderful, you know. Uh, wow. So... Uh, it was uh, it was nice to just go out for an evening mm-hmm. and to dinner with them in a restaurant yeah. or whatever you know. And uh, by that time, I was quite um, adept, and uh, I could you know I could really dress up quite nicely. Okay. I looked really nice. I looked quite attractive in those days. And uh, so uh, they took me all sorts of places, and uh, it. It was uh, it was after my wife had discovered right. well, all about this, and she sort of came to an agreement that I could go out just once in a while and mm-hmm. once in a while with my friends. And it was one of those things that just kept a little nucleus of us together mm-hmm. that made us feel right. The Belmont Society 
had a lot of members and letters coming in on its magazine, its monthly magazine and things like that. So, you, you know, you've got a lot of information mm-hmm. from it. This was just a sort of social armor. You said uh, the Royal Society came after your wife at the time found out. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, we were up in the north of England living in Durham and uh, someone's garden wall fell on the leg of my son who was then about, probably about seven or eight, and broke his leg just before we were going on holiday to the Isle of Wight. And uh, there were cliff paths to walk up, and I was carrying him (laughs) and carrying the baby as well. And I got a hernia, so I had to go into hospital. And in those days, hernia operations weren't keyhole operations. You're in hospital for five days, and it felt like you'd been kicked by a donkey, you know. (laughs) Anyway, my wife was looking for something, and looked in the boot of my car and found uh, a Polaroid picture of this woman and came tearing into the hospital and saying, who's this? You know, because it was all neatly uh, in some sort of hidden uh, envelope or something like that. And I had to either admit to having a girlfriend or having that. <laughs> Anyhow, she was very, very good in understanding. Really? Uh, I mean, it was a tough little time for a month or two, but... Right. Uh, she understood that it was something that I couldn't avoid. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't just say, I'll give it up. So she said, um, don't get it anywhere near home, get it, don't get it anywhere near the children, don't get it near people we know, or anything like that. Uh, but if you must do it, sort of go somewhere else to do it. And that's how I sort of got my friends I knew in London uh, and came out to them, and they were so charming and nice, it uh, really did help a great deal. I mean, they, you know, I was going through that stage where I was self-conscious on my own, uh, and not not meeting the challenges, uh, which are really quite hard to, to meet. Uh, and they used to sort of send me into the supermarket and saying, look, go and get some cigarettes, we'll wait for you outside. Uh, we're not coming in with you. You've got to go in and buy some cigarettes for us. <laughs> you know? And I used to have to go in and go to the checkout. And, uh, and things like that, which they forced me into challenges that um, actually were so good for me because wow. it gave me the confidence that uh, many transvestites, even transgender people, who've been, had the operation still have challenges they haven't met. And uh, I realised that if I was going to be successful at actually living a life as a woman, I would have to meet every challenge, every challenge that came along. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, they took me to France once with a male passport. <laughs> <laughs> We, took, we went for lunch uh, oh, right. at Cap Greenay, and uh, we were a car full of people, about six of us in a big car, and uh, we all had passports, and we went through the passport control, we sort of waved our car, and, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, they were the sort of people that would say, we're, we're game for anything, we'll look after you, whatever happens, we'll talk our way through it, you know. And who were these people? How did you meet them? I don't know, they were friends that I'd 
studied with some of them. Uh, you know, they were they were people who they had friends, you know, friends of friends, and they were people I'd uh, worked with as clients. And I, I was after a while, I was self-employed as a um, what we now call a financial advisor. They were the right sort of people, you know, young pe- young people who were running their own little companies and things like that, and mm-hmm. uh, had had some life in them. One of them uh, was homosexual, and he had a very good little company going, and I used to help a lot with his company. Uh, and he thought, you know, this was great, that I should be like this, and he, yeah. he wanted me to sort of have the experiences. And uh, he had a partner uh, who was pretty good, uh, so, you know, they formed a bit of a, a nucleus and yeah. because he was running a, a quite a prosperous little company that actually paid for some of our trips to Circus Loy and um, things like that. And I remember soon afterwards, I went with one of my friends to the Royal Opera House. By that time, I'd collected some beautiful vintage dresses and things like that. I, I was dressed up beautifully and looking my best. And we went in the interval, we went into the champagne bar and that sort of thing. And heads turned. It was it was such a wonderful feeling, you know. Yeah. And it wasn't because I was looking male, it was because I yeah. really looked amazing. Look the yeah. <laughs> they sound like such amazing people. Oh right? yes. Yeah. And this is it. I had this when I felt I could trust people, I had this openness and I just admitted to them. I made them feel that they were trusted with something of me, which was personal. I knew that they were the sort of people that wouldn't be disgusted. And that made a lot of difference to my life. And uh, I was in my mid-70s when I started living full-time as a woman. Uh, and it was a strange thing because it was, well, early 70s, I suppose, yeah. I'd been living full-time as a woman for about five or six years, you know? My doctor, I went to the doctor one day about something or other, she said, look, uh, she'd been giving me hormone patches for a year or so just to sort of help develop my breasts and things like that. And she said, why don't you go and have the operation? I said, well, you know, I'm in my 70s, they won't do it. And she said, well, I'll ask. (laughs) And she sent off all the letters and things like that and they interviewed me. They, you had to have two really searching psych, psychological oh, really? psychiatrists who uh, actually interview you six months apart. And what's, what's the purpose of that? To check them? That is to make sure that you're not being silly or, you know... Uh, I didn't realise that. Uh, oh, and you are suited to it, you know, that yeah. it, you know, not only suited to it, but that something in you that really is there, and you're not trying to escape a world which is you're finding you can't manage very well as a man, and you think, oh, if I change my sex, it'll all go away. Right. Of course it won't. Yeah. Uh, so I went, and they were absolutely marvellous with me. I mean, the first interview was uh, five minutes allocated 40 minutes, and he said, well, what are we going to talk about for the rest of this 40 minutes? <laughs> oh. He said, you're exactly, you're through, there's no problem. I didn't have any qualms about that. 
and eventually, you know, a lot of delays in operations and things like that, had the operation when I was 81. And you were the oldest person to have that operation? I think so. As far as uh, everyone tells me, probably the oldest person to have the operation in the world. Mm. (laughs) But that's nothing really, because to me, it's something that happened a few years back. It's over. You know, I'm still living as a woman. (laughs) Yeah. I still have all my relationships with friends and everything like that as a woman. Mm-hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, I've got a nice house to live in and I live a comfortable life. I do a lot of work for older people, uh, but in and out of it, there's this... I do some work for trans charities and things like yeah. that, but I'm not like, going out there, uh, you know, sort of campaigning. I'm just living a life. Uh, my campaigning is for older people's benefits and things like that in general i'm just living my life as my life is i haven't regretted for one moment changing over i feel natural to it now but it's not a question of i'm sort of pioneering anything i'm just one of those people that's changed over and uh, all the work i do is concerned with what I'm really interested in something else beyond the people i'm interested in what you said you said you started uh, living full-time as a woman in your 70s. Yeah. So what made you decide to do it then? Well, that was really circumstantial. My wife and I decided that we would split up. It was fairly amicable. So we had to divide the value of our house, which was in Camberley. And um, I halved my pension, everything like that, you know. So um, hopefully we split everything down the middle as it should be. She got a flat. I stayed in the house for another year while sort of sorted things out. In but I was living amongst the neighbours. I'd lived there for 42 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was one of those things that you didn't suddenly sort of appear. When I bought my house down in New Haven on the south coast, um, it's not far from where my wife now lives. Uh, we have a daughter down there and grandchildren, so it's, you know, it's convenient. I, on the day I moved in, people next door to me invited me in, and uh, of course I had long curly hair, I had long fingernails, and Dina next door said, immediately jumped to the conclusion that I was somebody who uh, spent time as a woman. And uh, she sort of I think she asked me or something like that. And I said, oh, yes, yes. And she said, well, you're perfectly all right here with me. She said, I don't think neighbours will mind them that much. So almost immediately I started living as a woman. The only thing was that I had to stay male while I had new hips and a new knee in uh, the hospital clinic. But then that didn't take long. It took about a year and a bit. Why is that? I hadn't changed over on the NHS and all those sort of things, you know. And I was just getting my doctor acclimatised to the idea that I ought to be female. So when that was over, I started living almost full-time as a woman. But then I had all these old people's meetings and committees and things like that. I was on by them. Uh, and I started going to some of those. And, of course, once I started on one, some people were going on the others from the same meeting. So in a short time, it escalated. And the last one was just, it was was in December time, I remember, I can't remember which year, when I was on the National Committee called the 
advisory form on aging, I thought, well, I've just got to do it here, you know. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote an email to the secretary that did all the running of it and explained. And uh, she said, oh, I think it'd be all right. I'll ask the ministers. And the ministers said, okay. So I rolled up at the next meeting as a woman. Mm-hmm. And everybody had been warned beforehand, and they were so, so nice to me. They were absolutely wonderful. And that was the last time I was ever a man, and it was years wow. ago. I mean, that was probably six years, six, seven years ago. It sort of made me because when you go to the clinic for the transgender operation, the psychiatrists say to you, you've got to prove that you've lived for two years wholly as a woman without ever once being a man. So actually, you know, that was the last time, a few years back, two or three years ago, I got a, a, an email or a letter or something, something from my old school, which was a boarding school, boys' public school. And uh, they said, we're having a reunion of those who left between 1946 and 1951, I think it was. Uh, and... Uh, it's a sort of weekend down at school. Would you like to come? I thought, God, there's a challenge I haven't met. <laughs> and it's almost, I relish the idea of finding a challenge. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. I've been on beaches swimming and everything like that. You know, I thought, right, there's one here. <laughs> so I went and I, they treated me so nicely. I was made so welcome amongst those who I'd been to school with as a boy. If there's a message to other people who are venturing to actually live as a woman, they should look at every possible challenge and make sure they meet it. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't meet it, you're going to live the rest of your life with a little slot that you can't go to. I mean, if somebody thinks that they're, if they get on a crowded train and have an underground train and have to be squashed up against other people, whatever it is, and that would they would be, feel mortified mm. by the fact that they were in pretense or whatever it is. Then they've got to go and do it. <laughs> because you don't want your life to be restricted. It's your, it, it's your own decision to come along and mm. do all this. But you can't, you can't make your life that bad. Mm. And I mean, I, I, I'm a very keen swimmer. Long before I had the operation, I had made myself a sort of tuck-in type of device that went under the swim costume and I was able to swim at swim pools. I swim the sea mostly. I swim the sea every morning, all year round. No. Yes. I was in there this morning. Very good for your health indeed. And do you wear like wetsuits? No. Well, you just go in in your swimming suit. No, we have, in winter we have gloves and boots. And that's it? Yeah. And swim costume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's grown like a cult in a way, mm. but with it we have such a varied number of people, you know. And so it is, it's a wonderful thing. I'm the oldest by far. <laughs> you said earlier that you, you live near your daughter. Yeah. How did your children, when did you tell your children? Well, that, that you were actually, I funked that until it was far too late. I should have told them much earlier. Oh, really? They. Uh, they found out uh, on some headline, I think. I, I'd, done a, I'd done a little article for a magazine, one of those sort of women's magazines that circulates up in the north of England. And, you know, once you've, 
you read it over coffee and you, by lunchtime it's gone in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, somebody on News of the World picked it up or something like that and, and they made a big splash oh. on Sunday, you know. And of course, Daily Mail followed on a Monday and I, I yeah. had them doorstepping me for about a week. You know, it was quite quite a, a, a big thing. And of course, my kids found out and everything. The grandchildren were wonderful. Anyhow, the kids were great anyway. So there was no great problem. Yeah. With were they supportive of you, Daniel? Oh, very supportive indeed. I go and I babysit for my mm. grandchildren. I've got a great-grandchild now. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, the whole family's been fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, took a little adapting. Uh, but, you know, they, they accept it completely. And have you had any, have you experienced any negativity then during your life? Funnily enough, I can't say that I've ever been abused uh, for being trans or transvestite or transgender or anything like that. The only things that have happened is I once was going with a friend through Leicester Square late at night and, uh, and there were some yobbos with lager cans in their hands uh, and came up. Uh, and saw me and said, Cor, you're a tall lady. Are you a man? You know, that sort of... And started shouting at us. And uh, so we dashed for a cab. There was a cab right at the side of the road. Jumped in the back of the cab. And then we realised there was no driver. (laughs) Uh, You know, things like that happen. I I once... um, uh, a policeman tried to pick me up actually once on some lovely summer evening we were in uh, Trafalgar Square uh, two or three of us two, two or three of my friends and me and uh, I don't know it was something to do with um, moving people on and all that sort of thing people came on these started chatting me up you know <laughs> that's great you know it's a first yeah <laughs> Going back with my history, it'd be a bit different. So anyway, uh, yes, the only other time I've had was once I was in a shop on Saturday morning, and my neighbours, this young man, uh, it was one of these phone shop things, I'd gone in to buy something or other. Uh, when I bought it, a uh, shop had other people in it, said very pointedly, thank you, sir like that and my neighbours were absolutely incensed and uh, they wanted to complain to the shop manager and like that and I said no, no, no. he'll know yeah why did, why did you not want them to complain I don't see any sense in it okay. what, what good does it do there's no sense in it at all there was in the supermarket somebody who I think more because of my voice because he wears glasses and perhaps right. didn't see properly called me sir once, but I, I have a great friend who was the, the manageress, the floor manageress, and I said to, to tip him off, it's best he doesn't do that again. <laughs> you know, it was done nicely. Yeah, yeah. And he'd yeah, been yeah. ever so friendly ever since, yeah. you know, as the fish counter. So, you know, I never had anyone come up to me and confront me and be nasty to me, because I know other people have. There's nothing, nothing wrong with the way I live, mm. you know, why should anyone feel upset 
with me, my presence. So it wasn't until you were in your 70s that you started living full-time as a woman. Yes, so yes. how do you look back at the first 60 years of your life now? Oh, I, that's strange to say that, because now that my personality has been given sort of free range to change to the way I feel it should be, I've acquired a, a sort of feminine outlook that feels horrified at some of the ways I thought and behaved and attitudes as a man. Like what sort of thing? Oh, it's just sort of the male-dominant way that males go around their lives. Yeah. Uh, I was guilty of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now you can look back at that with hindsight. And I look at hindsight and feel horrified oh, that wow. I was too was like that. <laughs> I couldn't possibly be like that now. <laughs> and it's strange. I see things from a completely different perspective. And uh, I actually feel that, you know, uh, there is some way to go for women to, you know, get their proper due rights in in life. Uh, and I su- I'm supportive of it. It's I don't feel I'm sitting on the sidelines. I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they need the strength of people like myself sometimes to help further the causes that are needed. When I was living as a female, I had got quite into it, you know, feeling quite happy with it. I was on hormones and all the rest of it. And it gave me a feeling that when I had the operation... It would just be cosmetic, you know, get rid of something I didn't want. In fact, psychologically, it made a huge difference. Uh, the difference was that it was the last, uh, the last thing I had to be in pretense about had been taken away. Right. There was no more pretense. And that uh, made a lot of difference to how I felt about myself. And with it... My friends, uh, mostly females for the swimmers, uh, had a slightly uh, different attitude. They didn't notice, but I noticed a slightly different attitude towards me. Uh, it was like that they had relie- were quite relieved to accept me as one of them at last. It's a life which I've settled into which hopefully, with good health, it'll last many years yet. There's very little for me to worry about in life at all. As I say, it's something, the change has happened, and I'm now, through all that, living comfortably and right, and uh, at peace with myself and the world. Is there any advice you would give to younger trans people, not necessarily children, or just generally younger queer people? Is there anything that you'd say to them? I would. I'd say, look at the challenges. You may feel like it, you may feel that you're rebelling against your parents and this is something you can do to rebel. So as a young person, look at the challenges that you're going to have to meet and work out how your life is going to be when you change your gender. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's going to be once and for all. It's not about sexual things. It's not about... It's about how you'll live your life and how you will get on and meet all the challenges that, if it's male to female, that a woman will have to meet. Meet some opposition, perhaps, but there is also the transition period when you might have a job and somebody doesn't want you to be on reception in the public eye 
on the shop counter where you know you've got to, you've got to feel that you can actually overcome that get past it a lot actually does work out at universities because they're away from home they've got more freedom and everything like that and they get to know their lives a bit better and who they are and I do a a, a little spell of new people at university who come along and talk uh, we call it living library uh, and this is at Sussex University and these people who are questioning themselves can come and talk to me mm. uh, and uh, you know just ask what what their problems are and they can talk to me about what problems they face and it's not just me I mean it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's people who are gay and all that sort of thing mm. and who are lesbians um, was there anything that we didn't cover? I, I just like people who listen to this uh, to feel that it's not a struggle of a life for people no. like me I'm getting everything out of life that I could possibly have dreamed of at one time. I had no inkling that I could have done this until 20 or 15 or 20 years ago. You know, it, it was just a sort of remote impossibility that most people at that time would ever have dreamed that this sort of thing could happen. Ruth was a pleasure to talk to. and I left feeling really positive. I think it's important to remember that, as she says, Ruth has been really fortunate in her upbringing, her family and her experiences. Because of where she lives and who she surrounds herself with, she's avoided transphobia almost completely, which is obviously really positive. But this is quite a unique experience. I know she acknowledges this in our conversation, but I thought it was important to make that point clear again. It's amazing that Ruth is able to live as herself now, and I can't imagine the relief she must have felt to finally be able to realise that. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, then please rate, review and subscribe and follow on all social medias on at Queer Margins. Thanks a lot.